The Choose Love movement offers no-cost solutions that keep our kids safe, providing them with the skills and tools they need to flourish. Join us in our mission to create the world we want to live in, one that's connected and compassionate. Check us out at chooselovemovement.org. Together, we can choose love. Hey, everyone. It's Scarlett Lewis, founder of the Jesse Lewis Choose Love Movement, and I have a very special guest with me today. Roy Lubit, MD, PhD, is a board-certified psychiatrist, child and adolescent psychiatrist, and forensic psychiatrist. He has special expertise in evaluating emotional trauma in children and adults, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, traumatic brain injury, post-concussion syndrome, and in doing and critiquing custody evaluations. He has published papers on each of these topics. He served as an expert in a number of criminal and civil sexual assault cases, civil right cases, and psychological psychiatric malpractice and custody cases. We are so happy to have him with us today to talk about the health and well-being of our kids and, of course, big kids. Thank you, Dr. Lubit, for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. So I've gotten to know you uh, over the course of the last six months or so, and your knowledge is so incredible and expansive that I really wanted you to be on one of our podcasts. We have a lot of parents and educators that are listening in today, and we also have a lot of kids that are suffering and in anguish. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what we can do about that, what what the solution is, and maybe start from how to identify, um, and I have many people calling and asking me, and I'm not always sure what to say, how to identify a child that needs extra help beyond, you know, more attention in the home and and what a school can provide. How would you identify someone like that? Anytime that there's an adverse change in a child's behavior or mood, I would want someone to take a quick, a close look. And of course the parents first. Um, But sometimes parents will say, oh, it's just a phase, oh, this or that use it away when there's really significant things going on. The incident rate for people, young people being sexually abused um, by a step parent or a boyfriend or uncle, even a grandparent, school teacher, other kids is very, very high. Um, Probably at least one in five women and one in 10 males. And they don't always show a lot at first, and they almost never volunteer the information. And if asked, they often don't speak up, and they'll excuse it away for a variety of reasons. And the best protection we have for our children is being close to them, spending a lot of time to them, with them, knowing, giving them the feeling that they can tell us that something bad happened, even more that they could tell us if they think they've done something wrong because children will generally blame themselves. They will think, I must have done something. Um, 
I must be wrong about what's happening because this is a priest or a minister or um, or my teacher uh, or just that I mean even now when I'm seeing a lot of adults who were sexually abused uh, at facilities when they were in their teens and, and earlier, they're still feeling somewhat guilty. I must have done something. There must have been something wrong with me that attracted them to me. Somehow I'm to blame. And so they don't want to speak up. And they certainly don't want to speak up if it's a family member, step-parent, boyfriend, because they don't want to wreck the family. Mm. And they'll feel guilty about that. And often parents also give sort of negative signals about hearing and start brushing things away immediately. And as, as the child is slowly warming up to talk about what happened, and the parent says, oh, that's nothing, you know, et cetera, at which point the child shuts down. And it's very unusual that a child speaks up right away. It's almost always quite delayed. And many of these people don't speak to, up to anyone until their adult years. And even then, many people, I mean, I have people who didn't tell anyone in, into their 60s. Mm. And so I'm also reasonable to assume there are many people who never tell anyone. And I guess, you know, part of that is because that adult is a symbol of safety and uh, it's too frightening for a child. They have an option too frightening for a child to think that their source of safety is not adequate for them, is not protecting them. So then they choose the alternative, which is to blame themselves. And that shame, blame, guilt goes all the way into adulthood and less addressed. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. There's certainly a phenomena of being blind to betrayal, um, which Jennifer Free talked about and I then talk about in later writings, where if exactly as you said, if someone needs someone uh, for emotional support, which is could be a boyfriend or step parent or grandparent of the child or one's own parent or sibling, there's going to be a tremendous tendency to not believe what a child says. But in addition, there are all the times when they don't even need the person that much, but they've just been sort of taught, well, I was told to do what adults tell me to do, which I've heard again and again from people who are abused as teenagers, much less younger. Mm. And they if they couldn't be doing anything wrong. It must be me. Maybe there's nothing wrong with it. And they're often, especially before teenage years, just confused. They don't like it. And what tends to happen, however, tragically, is that when they do hit their teenage years and they reach puberty and they start realizing this was wrong, and that's when symptoms hit. And then also in adult years, at various different stages, symptoms hit. So first serious relationship, first sexual relationship, marriage, having one's own children, all of these present tremendous developmental uh, problems for not just for everyone, but particularly for people who've been sexually abused. And the statistics are that there are children who are abused, there, there are more women who have, and men who have PTSD as adults 
because of sexual abuse in childhood, then there are children who have PTSD from being sexually abused. So things get worse over time in a, in a variety of ways and for several mechanisms, including sort of something we call allostatic attrition, which is people just get weaker and weaker under the stress. And those who have dissociation, who space off, um, who feel unreal, the world's unreal for a while, or who um, sometimes they start having periods when they don't remember what happened, but they can act in a fugue state, that these people tend to get much worse over time. I've seen multiple people who were functioning fairly well into their 30s, at which point the dissociation, because it grew, took over and they ceased being able to function. It's kind of interesting. I think of I think of two things actually. I think of the uh gymnastics team, the Olympic gymnastics team and their doctor, Larry Nasir, who for decades was sexually abusing the girls on the team. And he would be doing it in front of the parents in the exam room. And he was just such a trusted figure. The girls thought, and they were in their teens and highly intelligent and, and out there. And, you know, they, they felt like it was normal and their parents weren't reacting or responding. And so he was able to continue that abuse until they finally had the courage to, uh, to speak up. And the second thing is you had, we were on a previous call and you had talked about some statistics that match the statistics for sexual abuse in kids. Uh, one in five of our kids have suicidal ideation now, today, this is 2023. One in 10 attempt suicide. And so those those statistics match up with, with what you said uh, with sexual abuse too, one in, one in five, which is which is absolutely shocking to me. I had no idea it was so prevalent. The, um, and there are plenty of people too who have not been sexually abused who become suicidal. Um, but it is, sexual abuse has horrific outcomes uh, over the years, much worse in time usually than initially. It's the suicide rates, divorce rates, drug abuse rates, um, doing work in the sex, doing work, uh, sexual activities for money. Mm -hmm. All of these have markedly escalated rates um, when someone is sexually abused and as multiple fold. And it does do tremendous things. I and mean, typically, so not every person, but so many people I've seen, their life history was they were doing okay until this happened and then they fell apart, in, at least when they hit teenage years. And they couldn't concentrate, so the grades dropped. They started hanging out with a less desirable crowd because the this crowd had other traumas themselves and they could relate. They, when you can't concentrate well and can't do well in school, kids tend to give up. Uh, and the teachers tend to give up in many ways. There was a, a wonderful study out of England 
very scary study actually, in which they told teachers who were the students that were about to take off and do well that year, and who were the students who were you know, not gonna take off, they weren't gonna be top performers. And at the end of the year, they were spot on in terms of who was going to take off and who wasn't. The problem is the students were actually selected by random. The teachers were not told based on any assessment who was going to be a good student and who wasn't. It was entirely random, but the combination of the teacher believing in the kids was incredible. And I remember one case where someone who had a, has had a very tragic life. Um, the parenting situation was horrific. Uh, not to, it's neglect, not abuse. And one year the student did incredibly well in school. That was a year when the teacher believed in the kid and spent a lot of time with the kid and liked the kid. And the kid worked hard for the teacher. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I remember in a custody battle case where both parents were extremely well-educated and successful. And one of the parents was very focused on the children and on education, supporting it to the sacrifice of his own work. And the other parent, you know, wasn't, you know, sort of let the kids be themselves, do whatever they wanted to do and didn't support very much. When the child was primarily attached to the parent and spending more of the, more than half the week with the parent who was attentive and cared about school, the child went from being a poor student to being the top student in their school. Um, parental alienation occurred, uh, child went back to the other parent who was crying, wanting, you know, saying, how could you do this and go to your other parent's house? And the child's grades trashed. Went back to the first, the other parent, grades went up again, went back again, grades, grades went down. And the last story um, is of a woman who had an horrific childhood from beginning to end in terms of abuse at home, followed by abuse at an institution. And somehow this person is doing very well. There was a police officer who helped protect her from an abusive partner who then stayed connected, who, gave, who helped get her work and education, who helped her move to a new country. And this one person believing in her, and she's doing incredibly well um, across the board. So, and this was her late teens, maybe 2021 20, at the most when this police officer came along and just said, I'm going to be here for you. Mm. Turned the life around. Mm. Amazing. Later stage. And part of the reason for therapy is just having a figure who is accepting, who's not going to get angry with you, no matter what you report, who believes in you is an incredibly powerful experience. Kids could then internalize that individual. I mean, there's a field of, psych of psychological development called object relations theory, 
that what happens is that kids sort of get attached to a, a figure and internalize what that person is and wants to and models themselves after that person, not consciously, but sometimes consciously, but usually unconsciously. And if a child is seeing harshness, the child will almost invariably become harsh. And very likely you're going to wind up having the uh, intergenerational transmission of trauma because mm -hmm. abused children more often than not identify with the aggressor in time. And there are some who don't, there are some who say, the worst thing that could happen to me is to become like that. Mm -hmm. But more often than not, they identify with the aggressor because the aggressor tends to win, looks stronger. Uh, that's the only way I can survive in the world. I don't want to keep being beaten up on. Why would I want to identify with this nice, sweet person who gets taken advantage of? Mm. Well, I've had so little. And we need, we need to interfere with this. And the schools are an incredible place to do it. Um, I wrote a chapter to a book on social emotional learning. And after reviewing lots of literature and my belief about child development from my training and years in psychiatry and being a parent, um, it's, um, it's, it's the, the people having somebody to identify with, which can be a teacher. I mean, I believe in social emotional learning programs. Uh, in, in the didactic part of it. But I tend to believe that the most crucial part is how the teacher interacts with the children. You can lecture people from day after day about what to do, but unless they also have a role model, it's not going to happen. Um, I, I've done a fair amount of business consulting and written in the business literature. And there too, the great CEOs model what they want people to do. And so they don't just tell people what to do. That doesn't have that big an impact. It's modeling. So there was a start of one of the name brand company we all know of uh, that makes chemicals. And the head of the company would come into board me uh, meetings every day and say, what are the accident statistics? And then would walk out. And that the walking out was the most critical part. There was such an incredibly powerful message that could not have been conveyed by words of saying, I care about people being safe. That's what I want everyone to be looking at. Mm -hmm. Much more than the bottom line, I want our workers safe. So it is, uh, parent attention is really important to listen to your kids, to try to figure out what is going on in their life. And this is not just for sexual abuse. There are so many different kinds of abuse that can be happening, even neglect and, uh, and not paying enough attention. I think that that is uh, unfortunately something that's rampant with screen addiction. I have so many kids that say to me, um, you know, my, my parents, tell me that they love me, but they don't show it in their actions. And uh, there's that disconnect. So it leaves kids wondering um, when you're 
paying attention to your cell phone and your kid is trying to get your attention. And uh, even if you, even if you delay putting that cell phone down, you're sending a very strong message about what is your priority to your child. Uh, I think that, you know, even in that little nuance, we're talking about abuse, but all the way down into the small nuance of attachments and the health of attachment throughout the child's life. It's so important. Every child wants to be safe, obviously, but seen and celebrated as well. And I think parents' attention is becoming so distracted. And I'm just so grateful that I had, my kids were young when we didn't have smartphones because I have my own addiction issue with smartphones. Uh, and uh, and I'm, I'm glad that it wasn't a problem then. So parent attention, just being present and paying attention and putting your cell phone down and other things. And I always say, coming from my point of view, you know, uh, you have live kids in front of you enjoy them. You don't know how long. And, and that's not a, a fearful statement or a threatening statement. It's just saying you have that, that beautiful gift and enjoy it. You can ask them how their day was. You can be there for them. And they want that even if they act like they don't. It's so important. And even the kids that are that are negative and uh, and and uh, kind of easier to just let them be in their rooms and quiet, uh, you know. Still, they they need and they want parental attention. And then the teacher plays such a big role in this as well, which is why it's really important that the educator also be present in the classroom and aware of each of the kids to see that light of humanity in each of them, but also not to have the courage to be present with each of them, even in their pain, so that they know that you are a trusted adult and you they know you care. Because if you don't ask the question, then they don't, they don't necessarily assume that you care just because you're there. So you're saying doing that in role modeling, which means that the educator needs to not only learn the the character social emotional development the essential life skills uh if they don't have them because just because you're adult doesn't guarantee that you have them they they not only have to learn them but they have to practice them and reinforce them right alongside the kids and model them in in everything that comes up every day all day long it's literally lessons to life to literally putting those social emotional lessons into action with each interaction with your children. So important for a child's safety, health, and well-being. The issue also is, is present for what? Um, if Johnny and Alan are having an argument in the classroom and it's time to start math, the teacher has choices. Um, one choice is to say, guys, stop fighting, go to your own chairs. We, um, starting a math lesson. That's not really being present for those kids. If the teacher stops and says, wait, guys, you know, something you're fighting, you know, Johnny, you tell me first, what happened, what's your perspective, what you're feeling and what you remember. No, Alan, wait for a second. Okay, Alan, please tell me. And then, guys, you've just heard each other. How could you work this out? And helps them work it out. 
several things happen. One is that these two kids have now begun to take in a crucial life skill. Second thing is when they get back to their seats, they're going to feel calm and able to focus on the lesson rather than being distracted by the argument. Another thing is that they're going to be really appreciative that this teacher actually cared about their feelings and they'll want to perform for the teacher. And fourth thing that happens is they're much less likely to have continued arguments. And it may take a few times. I'm not saying this is magic. You do it once and that's the end of it. But over the long run of getting their education, doing this saves time. Teachers are so pressured with numbers much of the time where they feel like they have to cram in information when so much of school also is really about social emotional education may not be in the curriculum but the school is about socialization you know think about kindergarten you learn to sit in a circle you learn to share you learn to take turns these are invaluable skills and then you learn to you know in time you learn to take work home and to do work when you're not being sitting in a class watching a teacher or told you have to do it right now and these are the social emotional skills that are crucial to our lives and the most important thing in school for kids to learn. And I remember also a story I heard decades ago from uh, Dr. Comer up at Yale, Child Study Center, in which a child came from down south and like the second day in the classroom, he started turning over the desks, creating a ruckus. The normal reaction, you know, the typical reaction is to be annoyed and want to deal with it as discipline. The teacher didn't. Uh, the teacher asked the kid about, you know, what's happening and please tell me about yourself. Well, it turned out the kid was sent up north because the mother felt that education was better in the north to live with an aunt the child didn't know. So separated from the only adult the child knew and was separated from the friends the child had had back down south. So what the teacher did to deal with this child's very poor and problematic behavior was to have a party the next day, a welcome party for the child. Mm. And the behavior went away. Mm. Amazing. So that's really being present. It's, it's being curious about why the behavior is happening instead of jumping to discipline, because there's always a reason for bad behavior, right? And if you get to the root cause, then you can, you can release that anxiety. Um, and right now, Dr. Lubit, educators are facing the really outcome of COVID and all the lockdowns and all the masking and that has resulted in kids that are not only younger that have that have stunted development in their mental and emotional and social growth but it has made uh, mental health issues skyrocket as we've seen in these statistics and that's coming out those those difficult emotions and feelings are coming out in behavior in classrooms and educators are experiencing uh, behavior, what they've been telling me that they've never seen before. And it's very difficult 
uh, how, I mean, what advice do you have for all of our wonderful choose love educators that are out there and, and educators that aren't choosing love, but seeing these behavioral issues, um, what, what advice do you have for them to, to deal with something that, uh, we, we know the, the origin of the, the difficulty, but we can't take it away. But now we have all of these issues that we have to help them with. There's always the line of love doesn't work, dub, uh, double the dose. Ah, I um, love that, of course. <laughs> the, I think just the way that we accept that some children need remedial education in math and English, science, et cetera, that maybe the great majority of students now need some remedial education on what they hopefully would have learned and the skills they would have learned in terms of concentration, focus during that period of time. You know, the, the complexity of work, the amount of work one does at home uh, goes up and up year after year after year in school appropriately. And when kids were at home doing things virtually and not having to deal with other kids, Part is they probably felt backwards to some extent, but they certainly didn't have the basis for moving forward. And now the teachers have to adjust their expectations. And sometimes that may mean lower levels of work. Sometimes that may mean extra time supporting the kids, talking to them about how they're doing, what's going on. Let me expand on that last point though slightly. Typically kids will be told maybe once a year in school about good touches and bad touches. That, that doesn't do it. Um, kids need to be reminded frequently, multiple times a year, that if anyone is talking to them or touching them in a way that makes them uncomfortable, it is crucial that they tell a responsible adult. If it's a parent, they tell the teacher or the doctor. If it's the teacher, they tell their parents. And if they don't like the answer, if the first person brushes it away, find a second. But they need this reminder every couple of months. That takes a lot of courage. I'm thinking about being a little kid and how much courage that would take, especially if you, if you finally get to the point where you tell somebody and they completely downplay it, that would be devastating. Oh, I, and I've seen those cases. Um, and frankly, the, the devastation from the betrayal trauma. Betrayal trauma is, there was much too little in the literature about it at this time. Um, there's some good stuff with Jennifer Fried and her people, but there isn't enough. And betrayal trauma is trauma, emotional trauma that people suffer when someone who they counted on for crucial resources, which could be food and shelter and clothing, it could be emotional resources, um, fails to, to protect them or directly hurts them. You know, the ultimate is a parent abusing a child. But teacher abusing a child, a parent refusing to protect a child, a teacher failing to protect a child, this is all serious betrayal trauma. And much of the injuries that I see in people who were abused in one way or another is the betrayal by others. 
when we look at people who've been through even single incident trauma, you know, a ferry sinking or building collapsing, uh, uh, an earthquake, these individuals often have more, more problems from the betrayal, from the failure of people to help than from the actual incident. We know that whether someone has enduring symptoms is at least, if not more affected by how people treat them right afterwards than by the intensity of the incident. Let's leave sexual trauma out of it because that's particularly damaging just by itself. But then too, uh, doubting the person saying, blaming comments, what, what, what were you wearing? What were you thinking that you were in that area? The victim blaming is horrifically destructive. But so taking natural disasters, more important to their future psychological welfare um, is the emotional support they get, not even the concrete support of housing and whatever. But whether people are emotionally supportive is even more important than getting them shelter in terms of how they do in the future. And recent research has shown that interpersonal psychotherapy, which is focused upon improving someone's social skills and reconnecting to people, is as effective as trauma-focused therapies. That's incredible. Can you say that again? Because that was really important. <laughs> um, the amount of social support that people have and the depth of the support is absolutely critical to human functioning. We were designed this way by evolution. We were not designed to be well on our own. We were designed to require the group. And so those who think that the ultimate you know, maturity is being complete on one's own is, it's an old idea, you know, starting from Freud, but it's not true. I mean, Fairburn in particular started in the 50s talking about, you know, relational issues. And imagine going back in time and people who didn't need to be with others wandered off. They didn't have children or if they did, the children didn't survive. Those who felt a need to be liked um, were nice to others. They went they did things for others. They didn't want to leave the community. They and their children survived because the only way humans don't have the claws or the strength or the speed to deal with wild animals. Mm -hmm. And so those who felt this hardwired need to be with others did better. And we still have that need. And so Isolation is one of the greatest fears. In fact, children who are dying, they're not scared of death. They're scared of being alone. Mm. Mm. And even for adults, we know that Alzheimer's disease is much more of a problem for those who are socially isolated. Their brains deteriorate, mm. as well as their cardiovascular system and all sorts of other things. Mm. Their, immune, their immune system revs up, and that does damage to the cardiovascular system and to the brain. And so emotional support is almost everything. If the child is 
been hurt or mistreated, they badly need emotional warmth and support, not criticism, not invalidation about it, um, but that someone cares, that someone cares that they went through this is an extremely powerful experience. In general, psychotherapy, if there's no empathy in the therapy, the person's not going to do very well. But it doesn't seem to matter very much what type of therapy, within, within limits. It doesn't matter so much the different types of therapy that are used. What matters is the amount of empathy. And that is what leads people to recover. And with children, even much more so than with adults. Well, I think that's very hopeful. That's very hopeful because we know that bad things happen. And bad things happen to good people, uh, the, the best people being children. And, and so we can really help them by being connected, having healthy relationships, being aware, being present with them, and asking that vital question, what happened when you're seeing the behavior? So rather than going to discipline, saying, you know, what happened and, and dealing with the behavior in that way, in a more healing way. And, uh, you know, I go back to you saying, uh, you're talking about Johnny and Alan having that conflict. And if, if the educator would help them manage that conflict in front of the class, wow, wouldn't that be a great modeling of how, for all of us, of how to move through conflict? You know, I, I, I think sometimes, you know, I talk in schools all over the country and I always think how interesting it is that middle schoolers are dealing with pretty much the same things that us big kids are, <laughs> you know, and it's really the same skills and tools that we need to get, get through the everyday uh, different adversities that we have and uh, same skills and tools that we use as adults. And so it's really important to remember that every situation that we come into that we have a choice and that we choose love, love, caring, connection, belonging in that choice rather than react to it with anger. And uh, especially when we're dealing with kids who might be traumatized. Uh, so you're saying, gosh, the number one thing is not, not even the traumatic event that happened, but it's how we thoughtfully respond after that traumatic event and how much caring we give. I, I call caring kindness squared because caring is so heart centered and kids really need to know. And how do they know? They know because we're present and we're looking into their eyes and we're talking to them and we're asking questions and we're actively listening to what they have to say. And that is what develops the trust that then can lead to them telling us negative things that have happened to them. And children, even down to infants and before they're walking, are much better than adults at picking up on someone's, how, how that person feels, what the person's emotions are. Mm. Are they really present? Do they really care? Are they focused on me? Um, I remember a story of a, a couple where 
And the mother would say, how come the kids cry when I change their diapers and don't cry when you change their diapers? Because we're talking about first, you know, very, very young. It was simple. The uh, parent with whom they were comfortable would look to them, would talk softly to them, would be very much engaged. And the other parent uh, would you know, just change the diaper. And the kid didn't want to be touched by someone who was like that. And the parent who was clearly very in touch with the child and soothing the child and very engaged, um, the children didn't mind. Yeah, so important to remember that this is nuanced and that there has to be a certain amount of love behind it. Uh, even, you know, early on in what I've read about attachment with even a mother that's breastfeeding her child, it's that is that whole even positioning is meant for communication. And now I see moms on phones <laughs> while they're doing that. It's like, oh my gosh, I just, I just think that everybody should be made aware of how important this is. Cause I think most parents want to do the right thing. They just don't even realize how important this is. Newborns primarily can see clearly at 12 inches for a very good reason. Mm. It's the distance from breast to the eyes. Okay. Yeah. And so the kids were designed to, by evolution, to be able to know, is this person connected with me or not? They can't see distance, things are blurry otherwise, but, but they will know if, if that parent is looking at them and focused on them. We're just going through the motions. And so often we just go through, I'm sorry. So often we just go through motions and parent can say, well, I spent an hour doing, playing a game with my child. Yes. But were you competing with the child? Were you uh, just doing it? Were you, did you take phone calls during it? Phones have, cell phones can be marvelous things. At least I, I don't know. This is not a, uh, a sales commercial, but, but I, I use an iPhone. So I know iPhones, you know, there's a switch on the side that can cut out everyone but selected people. Um, I think you know what was I was doing. I was delayed in getting on the Zoom this earlier. My adult child called me and I said, I got to talk to her first. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes, priority. And my kids know that, you know, my phone is on for them 24-7. Um, and if parents are with their kids, they can just totally turn them off. Mm -hmm. And yes, there are business things, but I remember the story of a pretty high up official, not at the top. Certainly he was developing his career still. And there was a crucial meeting in this name brand company um, on Halloween. And the guy just said, I take my kids trick-or-treating. I can't go. And I said, all oh, these people have arranged. I take my kids trick-or-treating. I'm not going to not do it. Parents, maybe if you could say something about, you know, parents today, work demands are incredibly high. They, you know, both parents are working and that bosses expect people to be, you know, especially, you know, 
people who are blue class, blue collar wind up having to work long hours to make enough money. And people who are white collar wind up having demands 24 seven. Um, and I could go off on that for a couple of minutes, I think in a useful way. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's start, let's start with that. I think that's a, a great point. You know, parents are very busy and it's, it's, uh, you know, you've got lots of things pulling at you and you have to consciously prioritize your children these days. It's really important. Parents often talk about how they're working so hard, um, for the sake of their children's future. But they're forgetting when they do that, they're often forgetting that the children's future is going to be far more dependent upon the amount of patience, attention, warmth and affection and time and help they get from their parents rather than from how much money you have to send them to the top school, the top camps, etc. And, you know, there's the, I'm, I'm working on a book on, um, kind of riches to rags in, because second, third generations of the very wealthy often don't do so well for a variety of reasons. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to work really hard to make sure that we have the greatest house and camps and opportunities for our kids that only money can buy and deny them what they need the most to be happy as kids and be happy as adults, which is a very secure sense of self, um, feeling loved and cared for, feeling that they're good people and that they can trust people. You know, their parents are there for them, they can trust them rather than the kids getting half attention. The, the issue is not number of minutes a day. It's the amount of quality time the child gets. That's a really good point. And that quality time means you're really thinking about nothing but them. You're not letting yourself get distracted. You turn the phone off. And I... There was a point when I started, work suddenly exploded on me, far more cases. And I remember one of my children commenting, you used to always be here 100% for us. And now you take phone calls mm. while we're with you. Mm. And I wasn't doing a lot, but it was noticed that I used to block any phone calls and just not take them. And now I would sometimes take calls. Mm -hmm. They were getting older and living situations changed and they noticed mm -hmm. and it bothered them. And so you saw my answer to that at the beginning of this call was that I <laughs> told my adult child, you know, I do have this thing, but I'm here. And I told you, you have to wait. Yes. Yeah. And I respect that for sure. We have to prioritize our children's health and well-being. And uh, it's really important. So Dr. Lubit, you know, there's, there's lots of trauma that goes on, but it's so fascinating that you say that it's actually not the trauma. It's more about 
the thoughtful response to the trauma that can determine how uh, successful the child is in moving through it. But, you know, there's also a time for medication. And how do you know when, uh, obviously it's best if you don't need medication, but how do you know if medication is needed? And when do you start considering that? Well, it depends what the issue is. There, ADHD is probably the most common reason for children to be given medication. Parents are very worried about giving their kids medication, stimulants especially. Um, though the literature says they're much better off if they have it. And so many of the people that I'm seeing who are sent to a to boarding schools because the parents couldn't handle them uh, were had untreated ADHD. Mm. And the brains of children with ADHD tend to be slower to develop, less gray matter, unless you give them medicine for the ADHD, in which case their brains look like the brains of age mates. So something's going on where the brain develops better. Interesting. Accident rate, the, the early pregnancy rates, crime rates, um, access are tremendously higher, multiple times higher with kids with ADHD if they're not treated. Kids without with ADHD that is untreated do not do well. You know, if someone had a thyroid problem, we wouldn't think twice about giving the child thyroid replacements. If they needed waiting till the noise stops. Uh, <laughs> if they needed insulin because they're diabetic, we would give them insulin. And there are individuals who they can't focus it. They don't do so well at school, at which point they withdraw. You know, why do something when you're not doing well at it? They tend to pick friends who also are having problems in school and they hang out with the wrong crowd. They don't learn social skills very well because they annoy other kids. And so they're invited less and they're giving negative feedback from in social interactions. It's a disaster. Um, I've seen many people who didn't take medication until their adult years, at which point they deeply regretted not getting it sooner because their functioning so greatly improved socially and, and in school. ADHD really has a tremendous negative impact. There are things we can do that should be done in addition to medication. But the medication is usually, unless it's very, very mild, um, medication is crucial to the treatment. With depression, also, a depressed child is not going to do well in school, is not going to be so popular with friends. Um, being depressed is not good for the brain, the brain's development. and As well as anxiety, right? And anxiety, too. I mean, that change, that alters your brain. So it's like you're, you're nervous about putting kids on medication, but also these other traumas can also alter the brain development. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you're, when people are depressed or anxious or traumatized, the balance of chemicals in the brain is not healthy. 
um, cortisol goes up and cortisol damages the hippocampus, which is the center of memory, as well as adversely affects the frontal lobes, the center of thinking. And so again, they're not going to do so well in school or socially. And the idea that, well, they'll grow out of it, they'll you know be a bit behind, but they'll grow out of it. They usually never catch up unless they have you know unusual persistence because, and then they still have years of far more um, stress than, than they needed to have or that's good for them. And so medication also has to be done properly. And so often it's not. So often people give an antidepressant and if it doesn't work that well or it works partially, they'll just leave it. When two thirds of people are not going to adequately respond to the first antidepressant, they need to have a change or a combination of medication. People, if meds are not really completely wiping out the depression and your doctor is not trying new things, you need a consultation because there are new things, but typically doctors don't keep pushing for you know trying different things and doing different things to relieve the depression. Therapy alone is only good for mild depression. And it's logical because if someone is quite depressed, therapy is unlikely to pull them out of it, especially in any enduring way. You need the medication to improve enough so you can benefit from the therapy. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I personally, I do almost all therapy. I will not take someone just for medication because that's not what I want to be doing. Um, I do medicate people if it's necessary when they come for therapy, but, and I do therapy with many people who don't need meds. I'm much, much just rather just do therapy, but sometimes it's needed. So it's not that I have a bias for it because that's what I do. It's, um, but I know the literature and I know experience. It can be a useful tool when things are a little bit further down the road, when your brain is flooded with negative chemicals and negative thoughts and emotions that are taking over, this can help you get control back. I know during my parents' divorce, I was 18 and I was having panic attacks and those were things that I couldn't control. And it it made me fearful of doing anything because I didn't want to be out and have a panic attack with friends or driving. And so I went on medication for six months and it really helped the, the, it stopped the panic attacks. It helped me deal with my depression. And then I went off of it. So, you know, I've, I've done that twice in my life and it's been very helpful and it's not a long-term solution. It is a, a shorter term solution. And, and plus the fact I didn't have the skills and tools that Choose Love teaches to be able to manage that situation on my own. So I do believe that if I did, that I wouldn't have had to be medicated. Um, but there is a place for it and just have to watch out for totally relying on it, obviously. It's likely with enough you know, preparation, strength, et cetera, you may not have needed it. But it's crucial that people remember that when someone has an emotional problem, their stress, anxiety, trauma, there are, the chemicals in the brain have been altered in ways that are quite destructive to the brain. Um, You can literally just take a look at the brains of people who've been depressed or who have trauma, 
and there, the hippocampus, the corpus callosum that connects the two sides of the brain, um, and the locus ceruleus, which picks up on errors, they shrink, and the connections among parts of the brain are damaged. Mm. And it's it's very serious. It's not like, you know, we wouldn't hesitate in giving an antibiotic to stop pathogens that shouldn't be there putting out chemicals. And similarly, people need the right medication to stop the impact of high levels of stress from doing damage. So, uh, you know, this is going to be the first in a series of podcasts that you and I do together, Dr. Lubit. And I'm so grateful for that. You have so much knowledge to share and there's so much need out there for that knowledge. So this was a tremendous first podcast in our series of what's coming. Uh, I appreciate the fact that you're a, a partner with Choose Love. And uh, as, a, as a professional psychiatrist, we need you so much and we need your guidance and your wisdom. So uh, thank you for doing that. We thank you for everything that you do for our children and, and being focused on children's safety, health and well-being, and prioritizing them in your work in psychiatry. Thank you for that. And we're going to reap the benefits of that in gaining uh, knowledge from all that you've learned, all of your decades of, of being in the field. So thank you so much for being on the Choose Love podcast. And we will take your words and really put them into action. And we will see you next time. Sounds good. Hey, hey, oh. It's all part of us. We can all choose love. It'll lift you up if you let it in. Let the heat.